know, a few years ago, I took one of those uh, DNA tests. You ever seen that? You spit in a bottle and send it off, and, and they send you back results, and there's a map. And so on mine, the, the map was showing my points of origin, and it was interesting to me as I looked at the map. It begins up in northern part of Europe in the Nordic uh, countries and then it, it started coming down the coast and it started coming into Wales and Scotland and England and, and all the way down and uh, what I figured out was that uh, I'm pretty sure my roots go back to the Vikings uh, because that was the pattern that they took. Uh, to add another piece to the puzzle, I had a friend who brought back a, a little a book uh, of name history from Scotland, and uh, it was the history of the name Hall, and so it wasn't traditionally Scottish, you know, it wasn't O'Keefe or O'Kelly or uh, McDew or something like that, and so it explained that the origin of that last name was because they would build these large halls, kind of like the Vikings did when they would move into some place, and so... Uh, the conclusion that I came to is that I'm a Gentile. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I'm looking at a room full of Gentiles. <laughs> and you and I have lived so long in the luxury of grace and in the reality that Gentiles get saved, it may be lost on us that the Apostle Paul gives half of the third chapter of Ephesians explaining why and how Gentiles are saved. And so this morning, I'd like for you to go to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, and we're going to look at Gentiles in Christ. As you know, the entire theme of the book of Ephesus is in Christ because it's all about those who are in Christ and what we have in Christ and how that being in Christ saves us eternally and uh, fits us for heaven. And so this morning we come to the third chapter and it begins in verse 1. For this calls I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence 
by the faith of him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it is my distinct privilege to stand in this pulpit today and to address your people. I recognize a, a divine calling that you've placed upon my life. Although I don't understand why, I have accepted it and realize and rely on you to speak through me. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that you would enter me of self and all self-motivation and that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and the desire to glorify you. Help me to represent you rightly. Help me to communicate you clearly, Lord. I pray and ask that you would help us to see how wonderfully you have made us Gentiles fit into your master plan. Father, I pray and ask that you would uh, deepen our appreciation for what you have done for us and that you would strengthen our security in knowing that we have an eternal place in Christ. Father, help me now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul previously introduced the subject of Gentile salvation through the new work of God called the church in chapter 2. So as we finish up chapter 2, uh, in the second half of that chapter, Paul introduces this concept of Gentile salvation, that, that Christ came not just for those who were near, not just the Jews, but also for those who were far, and that in Christ he reconciled them together. He removed the dividing wall of the law. He brought together this new work, this new entity, this new body, this new building, Jew and Gentile in Christ known as the church. At this point, at this time of the writing of this letter, this would still be considered a new work of God. It is coming after 2,000 years of Hebrew history. God is changing the program, and there are still some people who are understanding that. They're trying to catch up with that, and there are some people who still don't believe that it is a work of God. Paul also explained the foundational role of the apostles to the church. If you remember in Ephesians 2.20, he said that Christ is the cornerstone and that the apostles are the foundational stones and then the church is built upon that like framing. And so he introduces a couple of concepts here. One is Gentile salvation. The other is the foundational role of the apostles. In chapter 3, Paul expounds on these themes beginning with an explanation of his unique role as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the very first thing that, that really he is addressing in verses 1 through 4 is that he has a unique role in God's program for the Gentiles. He is the apostle assigned to the Gentiles. Notice how verse 1 begins, for this cause for this cause grammatically that is pointing back to the subject in the previous chapter it is pointing back to the building of the church he just described how that Christ is building a church for the habitation of God and he says for this cause for the building up of the body of Christ he goes on to say that he is for the Gentiles that he's a minister or a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles that points toward Paul's place in God's plan if you notice he repeatedly addresses the Gentiles he does it in verse 1 he says it in verse 6 he says it in verse 
verse 8. That repetition alerts us to the emphasis of the text and who it is addressed to. It is not that no Jew uh, could uh, read this and not benefit from it. But what he is doing is he is addressing to Gentiles who are in Christ. He is speaking uniquely or specifically to them to help them understand their role, their position in the work of God. And he is reminding them or informing them that he has been called of God to be their apostle. In verse 2, Paul indicates that God specifically selected him and entrusted him with a ministry to the Gentiles. Notice verse 2, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me to you word. And so Paul is saying, hey, look, I'm a conduit. In God's master plan, God has placed me in this mediating role between him and you. He has entrusted me with this administration of grace that he wants me to use on you. Why did he select Paul? Well, let me just tease that out for just a moment. Uh, Paul is uniquely selected out of all the apostles to be the one who ministers to the Gentile. Well, as we know, Paul's story is different from all the other apostles, isn't it? Jesus selected 12, and one of them betrayed him and committed suicide, Judas, and so that leaves 11 apostles. The apostles thought they needed to fill in the gap, and so they uh, rolled some dice, cast some lots, you know, pulled straws, and, and selected a 12th guy in the beginning of the book of Acts. But do you notice you never hear about that guy ever again and so while they were trying to do something good it was not God choosing God doesn't choose the 12th apostle until Acts chapter 9 when this guy named Saul who is a Jew a Hebrew of the Hebrews a Pharisee the son of a Pharisee an up and coming rising star in his religious tradition who thinks that Christianity is an aberrant branch of Judaism and that Christ was a fake and a false one and that he is trying to exterminate it. And as he is on his way to do that, Christ opens up the heavens, blinds him with light, drives him to the ground, and he says, Paul or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks the question, who are you, Lord? He recognizes that it's the Lord who is speaking, but he doesn't know why the Lord is saying why are you persecuting me and he says it is I Jesus whom you persecuted it's hard to kick against the pricks and so he's indicating that Saul had been having some conviction in his heart he didn't know what it was but something wasn't right spiritually as he was trying to do this and Saul asked his second question what would you have me to do Lord and the response is that I I will tell you what I'm going to have you do I will send you and so Paul is selected, in my opinion, because he understood the intricacies of the law. He was a student of the law since the time that he was a small child. He has been memorizing the law. He has been studying the law. As a matter of fact, at one point he says that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most famous rabbis who ever lived in Israel's history. His name literally means the gift of God. And he is said to have made a major impact on Judaism so that when he died, they said that the light had went out 
or dimmed in Israel. And so Saul was no slacker. He was not graduating bottom of his theological class. That dude knew the law perhaps as good as anybody in his day. But then we notice something different. He didn't follow Jesus from the very beginning like Peter, James, John, Matthew, and the others, did he? He was a guy who actually went against Jesus, who actually had Jesus' followers executed so that when he got saved, he experienced grace in a way that few others had. And because of that, he becomes the perfect candidate to bridge this gap to the Gentiles because he understood the law and could explain it, how that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and how that Gentiles could be saved without going through the law. But he also has experienced the deep grace of God and he knows the realities of grace and the necessity of grace. And that makes him the perfect candidate to be the one who is sent to the Gentiles so that he can explain to them theologically what is going on, but so that he can also understand the grace that overrides and overrules the law and saves them and so Paul understands his role in the work of God at this time Paul spoke about his God-given ministry to the Gentiles in other letters like Romans eleven thirteen, when he said I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles definite article not a apostle not an apostle I am the apostle to the Gentiles and he says this I magnify mine office it's official it wasn't just something he took upon himself. It wasn't just a hobby. It wasn't just, you know, hey, I like these Gentiles better than I like the Jews, or they don't stone me and beat me as nearly often as the Jews do, so I'm going to go this route. No, he recognized that there was some sort of authoritative, official decree or call from God that was sending him to the Gentiles, and he accepted it, and he embraced it, and he was pursuing it with all of his might. What made Paul different from the other apostles in this respect? Now, now I'm not talking about what was his background that made him different. How could he say that he has a unique role to the Gentiles that, say, Peter or James or John didn't have? Well, verse 3 states, or Paul states in verse 3, the answer to that. And he says this, how that by revelation he, that is God, made known unto me the mystery. You see, verse 3 states that God had revealed truth about his plan for the Gentiles to Paul that he had not formerly or fully revealed to anyone else. We've been talking a little bit about this in our teachers' meetings here lately. We're covering the major doctrines, and one of them was the doctrine of the Bible, bibliology. How did we get the Bible? Well, it begins with revelation. God reveals truth to mankind that is otherwise unknowable. Uh, revelation was progressive. It began with the first man, Adam, and God reveals some things to Adam 
uh, that uh, are Revelation. And it continues until the last apostle John when he pens the book of the Revelation. And for that period of time, some 1,500 years, God's revelation is progressive. He revealed some to Adam and then some to Noah and then some to Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the prophets, the disciples, until the revelation is complete and fulfilled. And so Paul is in that line receiving new revelation. And what he says is, God has revealed to me some things that he has not formerly revealed. Up to this point, he hasn't revealed the details of this and he hasn't fully revealed it. Because when he uses the word mystery, mystery doesn't mean a whodunit that you can't figure out. It means something that is not fully revealed. And so God had hinted at it or gave uh, indicators of it previously, kind of like when we read in Psalm 67 this morning that the nations be glad that they will know God. That was God nodding towards this or pointing them towards this, but it wasn't a full disclosure. They didn't understand how the nations would be glad and how they would know God. But Paul says, man, I stand in line as a recipient of revelation and God has revealed to me divine truth about the place of Gentiles in the body of Christ. Now, a skeptic could look at this and say, well, that's a little myoptic. Uh, maybe, maybe Paul's in his own echo chamber and he uh, thinks that he's got this gift and everybody who, who, who gathers around him is saying, yeah, you're right, Paul, you're the one. But we need to take into account the fact that, uh, that according to Galatians 2, 7 through 9, Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles was recognized by the other apostles like James, John, and Peter. In Galatians 2, 7 through 9, he says that, that they recognize that the ministry of uncircumcision to the uncircumcision or to the Gentiles was given to me just as the ministry to the circumcision was given to Peter. And he says, those that seem to be pillars in the church, John, James, and Peter gave me the right hand of fellowship and sent me to the uncircumcision or to the Gentiles. And so uh, Paul's not in some uh, echo chamber. He's not an egomaniac. He's not saying, hey, look, I, I'm the man. He is recognizing that God has given him a call, given him a revelation, and that was recognized by the other men of God at that time, which is also confirmed and evidenced by the fact that Paul became the chief writer of the New Testament. He wrote about half of the books of the New Testament. Thirteen of them bear his name. Thirteen out of 27 of the books in your New Testament Bible were penned by the Apostle Paul to Gentile congregations. And notice Paul alludes to that in verse 3 and in verse 4. In verse 3 he says that he wrote this revelation, right? How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Parenthetical statement, as I wrote afore in few words. I, I've, I've written about this a little bit before. I'm writing about it now more. Watch verse 4, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so Paul took that revelation that was given to him supernaturally and he wrote it down. That's how we get scripture. That's called inspiration. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, and that the man of God may be truly furnished unto all good works. Right? Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so uh, the Apostle Paul receives the revelation. He writes it down by inspiration. It becomes the Word of God, and it makes up half of the New Testament. If we confirm Scripture with Scripture, I would point out that Paul wrote on this subject at the end of the book of Romans, uh, Romans 15, 15, and 16. He says, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you on mine because of the grace given unto me of God that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So the Apostle Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He is the Apostle to the Gentiles. He's receiving revelation from God about the Gentiles. He is writing it down by inspiration and sending it to the Gentiles. But it does beg the question, why would God give Gentiles their own Apostle and use him to write 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament? Almost seems out of balance, doesn't it? I mean, there's this major shift that is going on, and all of a sudden what was a Jewish book now really is focused on the Gentiles. And half of the New Testament is written to the Gentiles, and the apostle to the Gentiles gets the headlines. Do you ever hear any more about Matthew and Bartholomew and Thomas and the others? Right? We hear about Peter some, James, John. But the other apostles don't even get any page space in the New Testament. And yet here's this Johnny-come-lately who is writing half of the New Testament. And he is the apostle to the Gentiles. It may seem out of balance in the context of the New Testament, but think about it in the scope of all Scripture. If 13 books are written to the Gentiles, how many books are written to the Jews? 53, in case you didn't know. There's 66 total, if my math is right, 66 minus 13, 53. So in the scope of uh, the entire Bible, we understand that there really is a small amount that is written to the Gentiles. The other factor is that it is because God has implemented a new dispensation in his work on earth in which he was giving unprecedented grace to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews and he has to give instruction about this. And so the second movement that we see in this text is the age of the Gentiles. We begin with the apostle to, of the Gentiles. Now we move into the age of the Gentiles. Notice verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirits. That, that, that word other ages there in verse 5 indicates that this is a new development. There is a new age, a new generation, a new era that is coming in the development of the program of God. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul used a word that is translated in English as dispensation. And, uh, and that word literally means administration, like the administration of a household. You know how we read in the Bible about uh, people who had a stewardship uh, the steward of someone's house. Joseph was one of those. Remember in Potiphar's house, he was the guy who managed all of the affairs of Potiphar. In, in the parables, Jesus talks about the unjust steward who was in charge of the books 
of the owner of the house. And so in that, uh, in that history, that, that word means the person who has administration. So they're not the householder. They're not the owner, but they have been put in a management position over the administration of that household, and they've been delegated authority, kind of like Joseph. Remember, uh, Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything that went on in his house. He entrusted it all to Joseph. And so Paul uses that word there in verse 2, dispensation, and it, it, it fits, fits into this idea of ages. In other ages, this wasn't made known. In other dispensations or administrations, let me see if I can liken it this way. You say, well, that, that's okay. I, I kind of get you what you're saying in the Bible, but, but is there anything we have like that today? And I would say to you that, that we refer to the presidential administration in a similar way, right? Uh, we've had, uh, what are we up to? 46 presidential administrations in the United States. When the president is elected, he is elected to an executive office. That means he has executive powers to carry out certain things. And each administration will have their own policies, procedures, and modes of operation. And from one administration to the next, it can be vastly different. As a matter of fact, if we just compare 45 and 46, there would be vast differences between those two administrations, right? But they're both administrations. They're administrating the government of the United States, and they have been given a stewardship to carry those things out. It's still the same country. It's still the same government, right? But the administration is different. And so don't get distracted thinking about politics. I have no hidden message here. I'm just trying to help you understand this word that is used in Scripture, how that Paul is saying, hey, God has given me an administration. He's given me an administration role, and my administration is the administration of grace. Theologically, there have been seven major dispensations or administrations in the Bible. It begins with the dispensation of innocency with Adam, and God is dealing with Adam and Eve in innocency, but Adam and Eve sin and they fail, and so they go from the age of innocency to the age of conscience, and so God is allowing them to govern themselves by their own conscience, but conscience fails, right? And God has to destroy the whole world with a flood, and he saves Noah and his family, and after that, God introduces the administration of civil government, and he says to Noah, uh, if a man takes a man's life, then his life will be taken by man and so that was the institution of civil government that man was to govern man that carries on until the time of the patriarchs when God calls Abraham and he says I'm going to work through this man and this family and his descendants we have Abraham Isaac Jacob and then that administration continues on until we get to Moses when God makes a new covenant with the nation of Israel and he has an administration of the law and now everything is about the law and God is operating through this administration administration of the law and that continues until the time of Christ and at the time of Christ John 1 18 says that the law came by Moses but grace and truth by Jesus Christ Christ ushers in a new dispensation a new administration it is the dispensation of grace and the apostle Paul is the chief architect of that if you will 
in the sense that he is the one who is writing and informing us about this administration, just as Moses informed us about the administration of the law. And there's one more dispensation to come. It is the dispensation of the millennium or the millennial reign of Christ when God removes the church from the earth and then Christ comes back with his triumphant saints and he sets up his own throne on the earth and he administrates the earth's affairs in person. And so just to help you see how this is fitting in to the master plan of God, to the timeline of Scripture, Paul is saying that this is the age of the Gentiles. This claim made by Paul is confirmed by the fact that God also revealed it to other apostles and prophets and that it is evidenced by the cohesion of the other New Testament books. So look again at verse 5 which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So while the apostle Paul was the chief recipient of the revelation to the Gentiles, it was also revealed to the other apostles. And so that's why when we read Paul's 13 books in the New Testament along with the other 14, there's no disagreement. There's no division. There is a cohesion that is there because God is confirming the fact that this is a new age and that he is working among the Gentiles in a way that he never has before. And even though people like James and Jude and Peter are addressing the the tribes that are scattered abroad, uh, it is not in collision with with the writings of the Apostle Paul. In fact, did you know that Jesus foretold of this age of the Gentiles? I'll read it to you for time. In Luke 21, verses 20 through 24, Jesus said, When you shall see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then know that the desolation is near, and there shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until... The times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Well, you know, there's a couple of historic markers that we can see in that text of Scripture. Historically, we know that the first Jewish-Roman war began in A.D. 66 and that Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70. Jesus was prophesying about that around A.D. 32 or 33. He says Jerusalem will be surrounded by Gentiles. Jerusalem will fall. The Jews will be scattered into all nations and they will remain dispersed until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so I say to you that the age of the Gentiles corresponds with the church age. It began with the resurrection of Christ and it will end with the return of Christ. And so we know when it began, it began when Christ rose again from the dead and the gospel goes into all the world, Jew and Gentile. And it's going to end when Jesus comes back to call this collective body, the church, out of the world. Paul described it this way in Romans 11.25, For I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant or uninformed of this mystery, that blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so everything in the Bible is saying, Hey, look, there's this period in time when God is focusing on the Gentiles. And I'm telling you, we're in that age right now. We're in that period right now. God is focusing on the Gentiles in this age like never before. 
And Paul explains the purpose of God in this period in verse 6. Why is he focusing on the Gentiles like never before? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This seems like such a drastic change from what God had been doing before with the Jews for some 2,000 years. And so as a Gentile, we might get a little nervous and we might say, well, how can we be sure? How can we be sure that we Gentiles are actually a part of this? How, how can we really go to bed at night and sleep in peace and, and know that we're not in jeopardy of going to hell or, 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 or not being saved because we're not part of the covenant people of Israel? And I would say to you, that's the final installment of what Paul has to say in this section of Scripture, and that is the assurance of the Gentiles. You see, verse 9 informs us that it was not a backup plan. It was not a workaround by God, but that it was part of his master plan from the very beginning. It just simply wasn't revealed until Christ. Verse 9 says, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Paul says, Part of my ministry is to, is to, to help you to see what has been hidden up to this point. It is the mystery of Christ. It is the mystery of the Gentiles. It's been God's plan from the very, very beginning. And we see glimpses of that. In Genesis 3, when God makes the promise, the promise is not specifically to the Jews. The promise is through the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent. We find in other places that when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I, I, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And we see it hinted at over and over again. God all along had this plan to include the Gentiles. Gentiles were in the scope of God's plan of redemption from the very beginning, but it did not become visible until Christ established the church. Think about this. When Christ gave the great commission to the church in Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all... Anybody remember what the next word is? Nations. Now, this is something interesting. You know you can define nations by two ways. One is geopolitical. We can define a nation by drawing lines on a map. And some of that's what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, right? Those were lines that were drawn on a map, but essentially they share the same history. As a matter of fact, if you trace the history of the Russian people, they trace it back to Ukraine. And so, and again, this is not to distract you with political issues and take a position, some lines on a map are geopolitical. They were drawn there because somebody wanted to have their own territory, they wanted to govern themselves or whatever. It's the same ethnicity, but they have drawn lines. That's not the word that Jesus used. He didn't say go into all geopolitical nations. The word that he used is a Greek word, ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity. And so what Jesus is saying is go to all ethnicities, all ethnicities. He's talking about our bloodline. He's talking about our genealogy. He's talking about our history. And you know that's great news? Because all ethnicities outside of Jews are what? Gentiles. All of them. 
Gentiles covers every ethnicity. And I say to you, that is why we as Americans can be saved today. That is why Africans can be saved. That is why Asians can be saved. It is what makes the gospel the good news to the entire world. Could you imagine trying to preach a gospel that wasn't good for some group of people? Oh, you can be saved. Oh, I'm sorry, where are you from? No, you're not included in this. You're excluded. No, the good news is that the gospel is going to the Gentiles and that God has declared that he would save the Gentiles who place their faith and trust in Christ no matter what their ethnicity is. Furthermore, Paul concludes in verse 12 that Gentiles have the same access to God as the descendants of Abraham in Christ. Check it out. We must hasten. In whom? In Christ. We. Who's we? Well, that's a combination of Paul and the Ephesians, right? That's Jew and Gentile. That we, Jew and Gentile, have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. We have boldness. Boldness has to do with fearless freedom to speak to God. Do you realize that before Christ, the Jews didn't have that? Before Christ, they could not go into the Holy of Holies. Before Christ, they could not approach to the mercy seat. Before Christ, they had to bring their sacrifice to the temple court and drop it off with the priests. And the priest made the sacrifice, and the priest carried the blood, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where God would meet with his people and offer the blood for redemption. But in Christ, my friends, you and I don't have to go through a priest. In Christ, you and I have the fearless freedom to speak to God. We can pray to him in Christ, and we can have our prayers answered. That's why Jesus told us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But we also have access. That means we have authorization to approach to God. Remember what Ephesians 2 said? We who were once far off, aliens from the commonwealth, without God, without hope in the world, we were at enmity with God. We could not approach unto Him without the fear of destruction. Now in Christ we have authorization. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tells us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy to help in time of need. And we have confidence. That means that we have an unshakable assurance from God. Here I stand as a Gentile with the greatest confidence that I will go to be with God when I die, not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me and what he has included me in. And to have anything less than that confidence is to disrespect and disgrace God because he's given you and I his word on it. So with all that God has done to make a way for Gentiles to be saved, why are we not outspreading the gospel to our Gentile country? This is our time. This is the greatest opportunity we're ever going to have. The age of grace, the gospel to the Gentiles. This is the only time that you and I have to share the gospel and to see other Gentiles get saved. 
When Christ raptures out the church, there's going to come a strong delusion on all the world except for the Jews. And most, if not all, of the Gentiles who are unsaved will be hopelessly lost. Right now, you and I have the gospel that saves. Right now, you and I have an open door to us that no man can shut. Right now, you and I need to be bold in our witness for Christ because may I remind you, the clock is counting down. The age of the Gentiles is coming to an end. And when that clock strikes the hour when Christ comes back, it is over. It is too late for those friends, those families, those co-workers, those neighbors who don't know Christ. And so, as Gentiles who have been rescued by the gospel of Christ, may we go on a rescue mission for other Gentiles. Would you bow your head with me? As we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. It truly is amazing what God has done for us. Not just the fact that he saved us from our sin, but that he made a way to include us. Equal share, joint heirs, not just with the Jews, but with Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful God we have and what a wonderful opportunity we have. Because most of our neighbors, most of our family, most of our friends are Gentiles. And this is the time that God has given us grace to reach them with the gospel. May that motivate us. May that stir us. May that move us to be more evangelistic and to witness to those around us. Oh, Lord, we cannot thank you enough and praise you enough for what you have done for us what you have promised to us, what you have included us in, what you have guaranteed to us. We know that we are undeserving. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that for those of us who have been saved, who have received this grace, I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, that you would move us and motivate us to be evangelists, to be witnesses, to share with others the testimony of our salvation, the gospel of Christ, so that we might see as many Gentiles get saved as possibly can before the time is completed. Oh, Father, help us to be the evangelists, the missionaries in this Gentile nation of the world. Help us to do that for you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.